Hello, good evening, good afternoon, good morning. I am your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. This episode is a replay of an old episode we did, or I did, before there was even a Pascal Robert on the show. Uh, I think this was even before uh, his first interview on the show. Um, I was still working at the homeless shelter when I did this show. And uh, <laughs> if you listen closely, you can hear someone walk into the room <laughs> that I was in where I was trying to be somewhat discreet, sneaking away on a lunch break to do this interview with Clyde Barrow. But there's some shows we're gonna be replaying that we feel didn't get enough attention because we were a much smaller channel. This was even before uh, we had a relationship with Zero Books. Um, and they were re-airing our shows, so this was deep in the archives that Jean Bajlan dug up. So I hope you guys all had a wonderful holiday season, however you celebrated that. We are still going to be releasing new content as well because we were recording like crazy um, all these pre-record shows, which is why we're trying to take a little bit of a break. As you can see, I'm still doing a <laughs> brand new voiceover for this, but this, uh, if you watched the show live, because we actually did re-air this as a, as a live stream, this conversation, Jean Bajlan actually made a small typo and it was originally recorded in the fall of 2020 before the events of January 6th. So when I read Clyde Barrow's uh, article, and you're gonna hear me talk about it on the show, I felt that he was onto something and lo and behold, uh, I guess I was right, and of course so was Clyde, that Donald Trump was the leader of the lumpen proletariat. Well, check out this show. Check out our interview with Clyde Barrow. We'll be back with even more stuff for you next year. Thank you for your support, and I am out. Coming at you all the way live from the lower bottoms of West Oakland. This is Revolution. Today, I am lucky enough to have uh, Professor Clyde Barrow. He is a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. He is the author of Toward a Critical Theory of States. Now, I'm going to say this wrong. The Polonanzas Millbrand debate? Polonzas. Palanzas Millbrand debate after globalization, and his newest book is The Dangerous Class, The Concept of the Lumpen Proletariat. Uh, I discovered uh, Professor uh, Barrow's work when Bill Fletcher Jr. Uh, on Facebook actually posted uh, an essay in The Socialist Project, Donald Trump, A New Emperor of the Lumpen Proletariat. And... I do want to read just this one excerpt from your essay uh, before we get started. Um, in his preface to a second edition of the 18th Bruminaire, Marx observed that the purpose of his book had been to demonstrate how the class struggle in France created circumstances and relations that made it possible for a grotesque mediocrity to play a hero's part. It is no coincidence that the cover of Time in uh, the June 18th, 2018, features an image of Donald Trump looking at his reflection in the mirror and seeing a king reflected back in the mirror. The July 4th, 2018, New York Daily News portrays Trump as the clown who plays the king. 
the language used to describe the Trump administration as a the theatrical but dangerous clown show played out on a world stage is remarkably similar to Marx's description of Louis Bonaparte in the 18th Brumaire. Brumaire. Uh, how would you, because this show is kind of an introduction to a lot of uh, Marxist theory, what would be a kind of lay explanation for what Marx called the lumpen proletariat? Yeah, in its simplest sense, you know, this is a term that that Marx and Engels actually invented uh, mm -hmm. when they were working on the German ideology. So it is a term that that's somewhat peculiar to Marxism. But if you were to translate that in sort of modern day layman's terms, it, it means the underclass. Uh, in terms of German, the word lumpen means rag. So it basically means the the, the underproletariat, the subproletariat. And generally speaking, Marx associated it with people who were chronically unemployed, people who were engaged in underground conspiratorial activities, uh, basically why he referred to them as the dangerous class, uh, that they were what got spun off of what he called the ruined proletariat, that these were people uh, who had ceased to work, would not likely work, they were de-industrialized in effect, de-skilled. Uh, and basically, he, in his view, they were the urban and rural underclass. Okay. Uh, so would you say that that would be Trump's base at this point? Well, I think that's part of Trump's base. One of the points that I, they make in the book, and I also make it uh, in the essay that you referenced for the Socialist Project, is, is that I think there's some remarkable parallels between what's going on with Donald Trump and what Trump, I mean, what Marx describes in the 18th Brumaire with respect to France in the late 1840s and 1850s. Basically, what, what Marx argues is that, uh, that you had a very intense class struggle going on in France. Remember, you'd had the 1848 revolutions. Mm -hmm. But it took a turn in the so-called June days, which is the first time when the working class developed its own independent class consciousness and said, well, we don't think this liberal republic goes far enough. We'd like a social republic. We want job guarantees. We want minimum wages. You know, we want a lot more than what's being offered to us by so-called bourgeois republic. And it was at that point that, that Louis Bonaparte sort of rises up as this, what Marx called this grotesque, uh, this grotesque mediocrity. And basically, the people who were first and foremost most threatened by the surge of the working class was what Marx calls the petite bourgeoisie, the small property holders, the people who were in some respects kind of working class, but they were also capitalists because they owned small businesses, they owned property. So they favored democracy, but they didn't favor socialism. And then on the other side, of course, the high bourgeoisie, the bankers, the real estate speculators. Uh, and the problem, of course, is they're numerically outnumbered by the proletariat, but they were sizable enough in France at the time, particularly with the support of the rural vote, the peasantry, which is also petite bourgeois, that Louis Bonaparte won the election uh, in, in a, at the end of 1848, December of 1848. Uh, it became very clear that Louis Bonaparte was not going to win re-election because of his policies against the working class. And it's that at that point that he mobilizes the lumpen proletariat, basically creating paramilitary organizations. At that time, it was called the Mobile Guard. Later, mm -hmm. there was a group called the, the Society of the 10th of December, the so-called Decemberists. Decemberists, yeah. yeah. And so he essentially armed them and used them as sort of shock troops uh, to, to force the proletariat back into acquiescence and use them as the foundation for a over launching a coup d'etat. And so as, as I write in the book and in the essay, you know, we're approaching that December with respect to Donald Trump, who seems to be laying the foundations right now for declaring the election invalid because it's very clear that he's not gonna win the election. So if he can't manipulate it, he can't sort of uh, undo it in some way. Uh, we're, just, we're starting to see an ever increase in, in escalation of violence in this country. Uh, most of it, in my view, being initiated by these sort of lumpen proletariat uh, shock troops. And would you say that's kind of what we're seeing with these uh, pro-Trump rallies uh, kind of to be the against the the Black Lives Matter rally and or, or like we saw in Kenosha recently, 
where the, the young man came out with the AR-15 and was shooting protesters. Would you say yes. that's kind of? Yeah, and, and I and one of the things I, I perhaps didn't make as clear in in the essay as I should have is is it's always important to remember that there is a distinction between. Uh, Trump's electoral base, namely the people who show up to the polls to vote for him, and his mass base, which is much broader and much wider than the electoral base. And I think that's sort of where the, the so-called lump in proletariat comes into play. These are the people who show up at the rallies. These are the people who show up with the guns. These are the people who storm the Michigan and the Idaho State House and run people down with cars. And of course, unfortunately, what we also see is in those cases that the police tend to stand on the sidelines and nod their approval. Oh, that was actually pretty disgusting. <laughs> they were handing yeah. them water. Yeah. What do you think is helping Trump galvanize this this group of people, this lump and proletariat, if yeah. you will? Well, the, this is a you know one of the things I emphasize in the book, which of course is much longer than the essay, uh, <laughs> is is that this has been a very long process of class formation. This so-called white lump in proletariat uh, has been in a process of, of formation, probably going back to the mid 1980s, certainly the 1980s, largely as a consequence of deindustrialization. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, these are former, you know, working class people who, who've lost their jobs. They're, and if you use the examples, it's the, the, the closed steel mills in Pennsylvania, the, the, iron, the iron mines in Minnesota, the coal mines uh, in West Virginia, the auto factories in Michigan. Uh, people who lost their jobs uh, in industries, uh, you know, and I would argue primarily due to automation. Uh, or in the case of coal, we just are not using it as much uh, because all of it, it. But, you know, as these jobs don't come back, you know, I, I would argue that on the one hand, liberal Democrats uh, have suggested, well, you need to go back to you should go to college. You know, even recently. Joe, oh, God. Right, yeah. Right, Joe Biden yeah. said to a bunch of coal miners, you need to learn how to code. Uh, so liberal Democrats have offered them nothing. But what Trump has offered them is uh, two things. One, he's offered them an explanation for their situation. Blame it on the immigrants. Blame it on the black people. But don't blame it on the capitalists who automated your jobs out of existence. Right? Blame it, mm -hmm. on, blame it on globalization. Uh, so he offers them first an explanation. And then, of course, as, as I was he offers them as a nostalgic solution. We're going to go back to the good old days. I'm going to bring those jobs back. I'm going to bring those factories back. And of course, he hasn't done any of that. Uh, of it, yeah. uh, and even if he succeeded, it wouldn't matter because the types of jobs in those facilities are now so high tech that the people who were working there 30 years ago wouldn't be qualified for those jobs. So you create this massive kind of lump and proletariat of deindustrialized former workers who are, who are justifiably very dissatisfied. Uh, very unhappy, despondent, in despair, no prospects for the future or for their children. And we're now into a situation where we are into the second or third generation uh, of this class formation. Uh, and Trump is the only person who has offered them an explanation and offered them a solution uh, as false as it may be. It's interesting that you say that. Uh, my most recent show, uh, I spoke with a, a hip hop journalist, actually, and we were talking about uh, the, the Republican National Convention. And he mentioned the fact that the first thing Trump did was had first line frontline workers. Uh, even if it's a dog and pony show, he still did bring out kind of real people. Uh, contrast that or juxtapose that to the Democratic National Convention, where it was, if anything, just a lot of Republicans speaking on the half, behalf of Democrats, and that was supposed to be some sort of signal to the Democratic base or just the American public that Trump is a bad guy. And I don't understand this strategy of just being the opposition party. Like, I understand it from a fundraising standpoint. Like, we're fine with being the opposition party because we can raise funds easier. But as a getting things done standpoint, it's just nothing's happening. Yeah, and, and as, as you probably know, you know the Democratic Party is is fundamentally co committed to to capitalism uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's it's terrified of the socialist wing that has emerged with bernie sanders of casio cortez and others 
And their strategy is constantly and is to court what they call middle of the road. They're really center right voters who would vote for the Republican Party. And they would rather compete for that ever shrinking base of Republicans uh, than to mobilize and organize on the left. Uh, and we know that would be a winning strategy because Bernie Sanders in his first campaign back in 2016, would, it, the polls showed he would have won that, quote, lump and proletariat vote that eventually all went to Trump. So there was a, a solution to reintegrate these people back into the political system. Uh, but the Democratic Party certainly not going to pursue it. No, they've done a horrible job. And to be so against this progressive wing, if you will, of the Democratic Party or socialist wing um, is it's baffling to me because the way I see and I don't know if you if you've noticed this, too, I feel like the Republican strategy is based off running against that socialist progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the Bernie Sanders AOC wing, which is why Joe Biden is supposed to be uh, uh, some sort of Marxist Leninist. Yeah. And, uh, he's just going to promote the Bernie Sanders agenda, which, which insane Joe Biden's been in politics for what, 50 years and does not have a very good record when it comes to the politics of the people. So <laughs> I'm, well, yeah. I'm more than baffled at, at that strategy. It just feels like this is what you were going to say to counter the the left populism, if you will, of Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that, that that's going to work. And you're right. That is the Republican Party strategy at this point is to tar them as the Socialist Party, as preposterous as that may be, because the Democrats have spent the last uh, four years campaigning against socialism and trying to squash that movement within their party. Uh, but that does seem to be to be the strategy. Uh, and I think, though, that, that Trump will continue. There's also one other thing I wanted to emphasize that I think is very important here that, that, that I missed was, was the importance of, of sort of finance capital, uh, mm -hmm. uh, who end up being the chief beneficiaries of this system, just as they were under Louis Bonaparte and sort of the deal they made with Louis Bonaparte, which I think is the same deal they've made with Trump is we're going to acquiesce to this. We don't necessarily like it, but as long as you keep the working class under control, that's number one. But even more important, as long as you let us loot the public treasury and walk away with trillions of dollars, then this system works for us. And thus far, it's worked very well for them. Would you say that's what the CARES Act was and the, uh, what was the Republican? Uh, well, the, tech, the CARES Act was certainly the one, you know, that was an, another trillion. But before that was the one and a half trillion dollar tax cut, which overwhelmingly mm -hmm. benefited large corporations and, and the billionaire class. And I don't see the, any change in the future. And, and let me say, that's the big stuff. You know, that doesn't even include what Marx referred to as the petty knavery that goes on every day uh, in Trump's circle, you know, uh, of looting the Treasury in all kinds of small ways, whether it's free, free airplane trips and resort trips and, you know, funneling money from his campaign into his, his uh, into his personal businesses. Uh, this goes on every day uh, with large numbers of the people in the Trump administration. But yeah, is it, is it going to change it? Well, I share your view there. I don't see it changing anytime soon. Uh, I can't I can't see Trump winning re-election. But what does worry me, as I pointed out, was Louis Bonaparte knew he wasn't going to win either. Uh, a second term, and he solved that problem by mobilizing the lumpen proletariat as a mass base of support to bolster him in a, in a coup d'etat. And coups come in a lot of ways. They don't have to be led by the military. You just have to refuse to leave office. Mm hmm I agree with that. And I, and I definitely think Trump was trying to, to sound that same alarm before he did end up winning. Um, if you remember the whole, all the, the millions of illegals right. allegedly that were voting in California. 
Um, yeah, he's really spent the last three years trying to set the stage for this, you know, claiming that there are illegal people voting, people are voting twice, mail-in balloting will be a disaster, the election's going to be rigged by China. Uh, you know, he, he's throwing every story out there possible to try and create a climate of opinion so that if he loses, particularly loses by a small margin, he'll be able to declare the election invalid. Now, here's here's my, a question I have for you. Um, I have a, a, quite a few, but there's a there's a congressional race that I think is of of massive importance, and it's Nancy Pelosi against Shahid Buttar. He's actually running to her left. Um, she's she's been kind of this gatekeeper in Congress. What thirty three years she's been there. Um, I was very saddened when uh, Charles Booker didn't win his primary against Amy McGrath because I really felt that he had a chance to dethrone Mitch McConnell. Um, if if Buttar is able to pull off this this very big miracle win against Pelosi and Trump was to stay in office, uh, what shockwave do you think that would have in Washington? Wow. <laughs> that would be big. Uh, needless to say, uh, I, I suspect, obviously, the whatever you want to call them, the moderate Democrats, the neoliberal Democrats would, would still be in a, a majority in the, of the congressional party. But it, mm -hmm. but it would certainly send a shockwave that would force them to make more concessions to the left wing of the party, such as it is. Uh, I think you'd see the Rashida Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez being given uh, more important assignments. Uh, and you would see a deeper polarization as well, because what this would suggest is that, you know, a, a move to the left is is in the offing for the Democratic Party and perhaps the correct strategy for them to pursue. And of course, Trump's going to play that up uh, as well. You know, and it, it would certainly polarize things to an even greater degree. And I think the right wing would respond to it and use that as an opportunity to engage in even greater violence. Mm, really? Yeah. I think they're just looking for the opportunity. So do you think a Trump victory? So let's say November 3rd comes, Trump wins his second term. Can the left galvanize behind that? Uh well, yeah. In in fact, uh, I would suggest that as horrible as Trump has been as president, uh, in many ways, you know, for the first time in response to that, you've actually seen the word socialism used in public for the first time since nineteen like, twelve, <laughs> right? With without a stigma attached to it as something that that people embrace as something good. Uh, People are even beginning to recognize, hey, wait a minute, whether you call it socialism or not, there's lots of stuff government does that's pretty good for us, that's being taken away from us, whether it be pensions or, or health care or education, uh, and call it socialism as we will, but, but these are policies that are beneficial to the public. So, uh, And you've seen many, many organizations on the left surge, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America, Black Lives Matter, and there are many, many others out there. So uh, it has provided a galvanizing uh, force for, for the left to organize and to become more energized. And uh, I have to believe that if Trump won a second term, that that energy would, would just continue to grow, which is not me endorsing a Trump second term. <laughs> well, again, the person that posted your your article initially, uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. and I have definitely exchanged <laughs> words uh, on social media about about Donald Trump, and and I've had a few different uh, guests on the show give their um, opinion on on Trump in a reelection, and they're they're definitely afraid that it may happen. I personally think there's just too much blood on his hands with COVID. Um, I think I don't think he can stand up on top of right now. What are we at? One hundred and eighty-five thousand yeah. dead. Yes. Um, I know there's this weird uh, press message that came out from the CDC or press release that came out from the CDC that says that a, a look out for a vaccine come November first. Yeah. That's usually an FDA thing. I know Trump appointed the head of the CDC, so I'm assuming that's why 
Yeah. <laughs> it's coming well, out from and, and today he declared that it has nothing to do with the election day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just a coincidence. And and what's really interesting when we talk about the working class and the Democratic Party, which is which I find somewhat heartbreaking. Um, I don't know if you follow sports at all, but when the NBA players uh, were striking during their their playoffs, I thought that was massive. Yeah. It wasn't just a work stoppage. It was a work stoppage during the time where you need your ratings the most, when you need your TV dollars the most because you're, you're not getting the, the stadium money anymore. Yeah, it was a real statement. And I think as the NFL gears up here in the next two weeks, you're going to see, I don't know that you'll see work stoppages, but I think you're going to definitely see a lot of protests that will generate a lot of attention. Well, in your home state of Texas, it's a daily conversation uh, about the Dallas Cowboys. Yes. <laughs> well, JJ Watt down south of yeah. Houston said he wasn't going to play. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I found that huge that for a player of that magnitude to say that, well, I'm not going to play with this COVID stuff going on. It's just silly. Yeah. And I know, you know, the Dallas Cowboys have been one of the teams that has absolutely not taken a knee. And this year, several players have said they will. And the the owner uh, is in a quandary as to how to respond to it. What do you think could happen if these athletes actually did have some sort of real work stoppage and a conversation had to start about beyond police violence and, and policing, but just a real conversation about poverty and, and, and the factors that are causing these violence in, in general. Well, you know, I think that is the benefit of any type of celebrities becoming involved in politics is that the cameras do turn to them and they do have the ability to start a conversation in the way that many other people don't. Uh, and, you know, people could criticize them as, as privileged or wealthy. Many of them are, you know, draw high incomes. But, you know, the cameras are on them and, and people listen to them and they're role models for lots of young people in particular. And so, uh, you know, I think the fact that they are becoming so vocal and so visible on these issues is very important and very beneficial. But I hope we don't get another Obama situation where he comes in and stops everything like he did with the NBA. Yeah, it's it's like this guy is always around to crush a rebellion. He apparently he was behind the the Democratic Party flexing on Bernie Sanders, and he's behind this NBA go pretty much shut up and dribble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, he's part of that sort of I call it the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party that's been in control pretty much since. Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976. They've become stronger with time. And, uh, you know, they seem to put far more energy into defeating the left wing of their own party than they do into to waging campaigns against the Republicans. In fact, I think it's very telling that they're more concerned about showing Republicans at their national convention that, look, here we are. You can be part of us. Uh, nothing to be afraid of here than, you know, what they gave Ocasio-Cortez two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Is, are they, do you think the democratic party is, is, which was at one time the party of like labor, do you think they are afraid of real labor movements? Because, you know, we have a little bit of one going on right now with like the Amazon strike with Chris Smalls. Yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, you'll never, you'll almost never see a, a democratic elected official even use the word working class. They like to talk about everybody as middle class. Uh, uh, they'll mm. talk a lot about the middle class. They don't so much talk about the working class and that's probably, you know, been the case. Well, since the mid uh, 1970s, you know, but it's a pattern you see played out everywhere. You know, what we've watched in the last few years with the Democratic Party, you know, that's played out in the British Labor Party a couple of times. It's played out in the Canadian Labor Party, uh, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, even German Social Democrats. Uh, it, there has just for several decades, last four decades in particular, been a real effort by the electoral parties. Uh, 
to try you know, to, to shift to the right and to distance themselves from labor. And it's partly because they view the old industrial sector, the unionized sector of what Marx called the proletariat as a declining sector of the post-industrial economy. And as a consequence, they've tried to reposition themselves in what they view as, as the growing base in a post-industrial economy, uh, you know, which they view as kind of a professional managerial technical class. Yeah, you, yeah, I don't know, you know, how old you are. You may not remember, but when the neoliberals started to surge back in the the late seventies, early eighties, people like Mike Dukakis, Paul Songus, Bill Bradley, Al Gore, these were all originally known as the Atari Democrats, uh, <laughs> which gives a little date there. But but they were known as that precisely because they were making the argument that the Democratic Party needed to break with the trade union movement. It was a declining sector of, of society, of the economy, uh, and to move to a different kind of really cultural politics, which is a lot of what they did, to focus on social issues, which is a lot of what they did. Uh, and you know, after the, the, uh, the big loss in was 72 by George McGovern, uh, you know, those couple of conventions after that, the Democratic Party explicitly and openly made a decision to break with organized labor and to break with the working class. And so they have never seen themselves as a, as a working class party since about 1976. So they're more of the party of the tech sector. That's right. Party of the tech sector, the middle class. Uh, you know, they'll try to present themselves as the party of small business. So do you think that's where Donald Trump kind of gets his strength when he when he criticizes the Democratic Party, calling them the the coastal elites? Yeah, and that's why it resonates. You know, that's that's why that kind of criticism resonates with sort of working class voters uh, is precisely because that's who they put out. You know, the Democratic Party put out there puts out there uh, as their constituency uh, and as their leadership. Elizabeth Warren, Hillary Clinton, yeah. Yeah. Barack Obama, these these academics. Very right. They went to Harvard. They got all the degrees behind their name. And the rest of you are just a basket of deplorables. <laughs> uh -huh. So here, here's another question I have for you uh, real quick. Let's say we get four years of Biden. Let's say this Biden-Harris thing pans out. This strategy ended up working, just not Trump. What is what, what happens after that administration? Do you think what what is the, what happens to the left after that administration? Uh, I don't think it goes away. Uh, I think Biden's going to find himself in a quandary because it, it's going to perhaps generate some optimism on the left that now something's going to happen. We've seen what the Democratic bill on police reform looks like. It's an empty vessel. There's nothing there of substance. And I think you will get a lot of those kinds of what we call symbolic policies in political science, the pretension of doing something, but nothing really changes. Uh, and I think mm. people are so alert and so energized at this time that I don't think symbolism is going to work uh, to, to, to sort of Act, make people acquiesce and, and be satisfied with the results. So I think the momentum that's been built up on the left will continue under a Biden campaign and perhaps uh, get a little angrier uh, at a sense of you promised us this and then what did you do? Because I don't think he will do very much. I mean, we already know mm -hmm. he's told us he doesn't support Medicare for all or any version. Of, mm -hmm. He doesn't support free higher education for all, he, even though in his generation we had it. Uh, he, you know, he does support student debt relief, and, and you can go on. And he's not going to change, you know, what used to be NAFTA or the WTO. None of these things are going to change uh, with Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the return to this, the status quo anti-candidate. Let's to return things back to where they were in 2016, 2016, everything will be fine. That's his goal. His goal is not any type of significant reform. My fear is that, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, is that if you do get a Biden presidency, that a lot of the, I, I don't think it's going to be a high voter turnout. So I think a lot of the people on the left are either going to not vote or vote third party. Like I'm talking more of the progressive right. left. And I think a lot of that kind of center 
not that politically active. The only race they really care about is a presidential one every four years or so. Um, those cats are just going to go back to having brunch. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And and that's definitely a fear of mine um, because I feel like, to your point, I don't want another Trump presidency. I am afraid of whatever authoritarian uh, moves he wants to make further down the road to dictatorship. Um, but I feel like what we're seeing protest-wise, a lot of that has to do with A, the lockdown, and B, Trump. Yeah, well, let me also tell you what really does worry me about the authoritarian tendencies of a Donald Trump if he was to win another term. Uh, one is that he's very clearly uh, dog-whistled and sent signals to the far right, to the armed militias, that he supports them and he's not going to move against them. Uh, he has also, in his pardoning, I forgot the guy's name of that Navy SEAL who killed the 14-year-old boy, oh, has very gross. clearly sent signals that if there are rogue military out there, I have your back as long as you support me. He's been very effective at mobilizing local police departments and local sheriff's departments and saying, you know, I'm your guy. Quit treating these people kindly. Be, put their heads against the door when you put them in the squad car. I'm OK with that. Uh, and, you know, they've been loyal to him. And then biggest of all, in my mind, uh, people aren't aware, you know, I am on the border here, is that the Border Patrol, ICE, and now the, the uh the Homeland Security Investigation, the HSI, have been dramatically expanded by thousands and thousands of people. And they are very loyal to Trump. Uh, their, their unions have openly endorsed Trump. Uh, we saw what happened with that uh, Facebook group, uh, right, mm. which kind of gave you a window into how many of these people actually think. So if you sort of patch all those groups together, Trump has a very formidable repressive apparatus that is loyal to him, not to the Constitution of the United States. And they will act on his orders, whatever they are. So I think the authoritarian uh, potential of a Trump in a second term gets unleashed. And yeah, it's really scary. It's going to be the real deal. That's interesting. That's actually, you know, I I have been following a lot of what, what's been going on with ICE, especially during the Trump regime, opposed to the Obama regime. Um, ICE has actually constructed urban warfare facilities, training facilities. They're training for urban warfare in Chicago. Uh, they're not apprehending, you know, criminal undocumented workers. They're training. They are literally training for urban warfare. So do you think these protests that we're seeing are not really helping the cause, if you will, and is giving fuel to the right wing fire? Uh, tough question the way you've posed it, because I'm very supportive of these protests personally. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't think people should should stop protesting. Uh, I think what we are seeing uh, is, and there have been documented cases of this now, is that some of the, the worst instances of things like, like arson and sort of provocateurs uh, are coming out of these right-wing organizations. They're being financed by right-wing uh, uh, organizations behind the scenes in some cases. Uh, so some of the provocation is is the right is the right wing, you know, you might call accelerationism, trying to move this forward and trying to escalate this violence going into the election, precisely to give Trump and William Barr uh, the excuse to clamp down and to sort of bring in these federal uh, organizations as they've done uh, in Portland. Uh, you know, they threatened to do it in many other places like Chicago, New York, and uh, St. Louis. Uh, so to that extent, uh, does it give Trump uh, the, the excuse and the opportunity he's looking for to, to sort of exert more authoritarian uh, actions? Sure, but I wouldn't argue that's a reason not to do it. The protests need to happen.
What needs to stop is Trump. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think one thing that he's he's done better than any president, I'm, I'm 43. And in my time, just knowing what politics is, even as a young child seeing Reagan speak on the TV, um, I've never seen anyone be able to capture the attention of mass media literally by just saying shit out of his ass. It, it's been incredible. And he, they play along with it because I guess it gets them good ratings. And that's even more kind of disgusting, if you will, that. Well, you know, on both sides, on both sides yeah. too, the, the right yeah. and the left, both people use them as yeah, a clickbait. But I, I think, you know, what people need to understand at the end of the day, the mass media in the United States is a corporate business. They're there to make a profit. They're not there to tell the truth. They're not there to convey information. They're there to make money. Uh, and what makes money is ratings. And, and what gets ratings is people doing crazy things and outlandish things because people want to watch it. So what they're doing makes perfect sense to the extent that the media is a for-profit business. And what's sad about that is Trump knows that and he like plays into this the base level of humanity. Like I'm going to give you, I'm going to name call. Yeah. I, I well, I'm walking up to the podium unprepared. Yeah. Well, and you know, though, people, you know, who study fascism and fascist movements uh, going back to the 1930s mm -hmm. point out that though what he, what he does too is, is not just outlandish. There's a method to it and that he constantly pushes the envelope Nothing happens. He pushes a little further. Nothing happens. He keeps pushing. And so he keeps pushing the limit so that things that really only four, three or four years ago, we would have considered completely unacceptable in American politics are now completely normalized and considered, oh, well, there, there he goes again. And in the process, you know, as people will point, he's broken norms. He's violated the law. He's violated the U.S. Constitution and he gets away with it and nothing happens. So uh, step by step, he incrementally moves this country further and further down the road to an authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, and then one day you wake up at this happened and go, well, how did that happen? Well, well, we all <laughs> sat there and watched it. You, you know, because that's what scared me about that impeachment. It was just so lame. I don't know if the, I can't think of a better word. You know, you, you don't even get him on emoluments. You're trying to get him on a phone yeah. call with yeah. the Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. There were so many other things that they could have rolled into to those articles of impeachment, and they focus on that that one thing. Yeah, the emoluments alone mm. should be enough. But is it one of those things where that's one of those words that the average American doesn't really get? And when we talk impeachment, the last impeachment trial that most of us are going to remember is yeah. And that trial was scandalous. It was so popular. Yeah, and, and I think that, that with this, again, it, it's, it, it was about the politics and about the, the, the lens with, that people were going to look at it with. It wasn't about what Trump did. You know, the Republicans that knew, knew what he did. Now, frankly, I, I think that, that they support this. You know, I think the Republican Party has had this authoritarian streak in it for a very, very long time. Uh, and they are supporting Trump because they support Trump, not because they're afraid of him. But what they also knew when they did, did not uphold the articles of impeachment in the Senate was they knew nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Mm. And in fact, what's going to, well, something will happen, which is we're going to send a signal to Trump, keep going. We're behind you and it's okay. And that's and that's how I feel with it. That's why I made the comment about Pelosi, um, because to get her out as Speaker of the House, and you know, imagine Barbara yeah. Lee. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't yeah. Know, I don't see that yeah. same you know lightweight impeachment happening with a with a Barbara Lee Speaker of the House. Comment. Very true. Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, there's no reason they could impeach the guy again and again and again, which frankly they probably should. Um, I just recently had a person on the show um, named Michael Harris, and he wrote a book 
called Welcome to the Rebellion. And it's about uh, Star Wars and the left, kind of a looking at Star Wars through a different, almost a Marxist lens and using it as a grand narrative for the left to galvanize around. And in it, he talks a lot about how the right uses grand narratives very well and, and the left does not. Could we, could we, what would be the, the grand narrative that we would need? Well, that, <laughs> to, that's, that, that's a really <laughs> interesting theoretical point because one of the things that happened to the quote left, however you want to define that, beginning in the 1980s, was that Marxism was displaced by a lot of postmodernist thinking, which was explicitly premised on the deconstruction of grand narratives and their right and their exactly. impossibility. Yeah. So for a long time, we have moved away from that. And you know, I think that one of the things the left lost uh, was the power of that narrative, the power of the sense that there is a future that there is a historical mission for us to undertake and to carry forward. Uh, and, and that needs to be reestablished. Uh, and I think one of the ways we do that, and I'm really happy with this, you know, we have more and more podcasts and shows like this to kind of circumvent the, the mainstream media and the corporate media, that, that we need to start telling that story. You know, that there is a working class. Uh, it's not the same working class that Marx talked about, but we're still producing surplus value and generating trillions of dollars in profits for a small elite. Uh, there's a place mm -hmm. to start, I think, is just start talking about, you know, where where do profits come from? You know, and I think, uh, uh, I can't remember who said it now, but it was that, you know, nobody ever earned a billion dollars. Thank you. <laughs> you stepped on some necks to get yeah. that billion dollars. Well, there's the, the old book, Gustavus Myers uh, was a Marxist at the turn of the century in the United States. He wrote a book called The Great American Fortunes. And, and he was the guy who said that at the beginning of every great fortune is a great crime. Mm. I mean, that's the Trump family sure in a is. nutshell, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I believe that's how they got their fortune. There was a whole like 10,000 words in the New yep. York Times about yes, it. Indeed. How does that get slept on? You know, it, it's an old story. And like I said, it, you know, and I would encourage anybody gets the chance to read Gustavus Meyer's book. It, it's still good reading. It's about the Carnegie's, the Vanderbilt's, the Astor's, the Rockefeller's, J.P. Morgan and, and all of those. And, and he documents very clearly is like uh, you, nobody earned the great American fortunes, they stole them. Uh, and, and, and usually at the beginning mm -hmm. with some incredible criminal enterprise that they were engaged in. Uh, and that, that, that part of what happens in is the building of the myth, right? The, the idea that Trump was this self-made man uh, who created a real estate fortune because of his ingenuity. And then what we find out that the reality is was uh, his father, it was his father's grandfather owned a, a, a brothel, I think, in Alaska or Canada or someplace is how they started. Uh, but but the reality was like, his dad gave him a million dollars when he was three years old. Uh, yeah. And then uh, like a million after that, and then a hundred million when he was about to go bankrupt. Uh, and, and the truth of the matter is this myth that got portrayed about Trump during the election as this brilliant businessman and the business skills that he would bring. Well, here's the business skills that he brought is that let's take the, the Trump, uh, the Taj Mahal casino. It declares bankruptcy mm -hmm. within 30 days uh, after opening because it's so high mm -hmm. leverage. But during this entire time, Trump is paying himself an enormous salary. He's cheating the small uh, business vendors that had supplied the casino. He's refusing to pay his workers. Uh, he's not paying back the loans and, and the bonds that have been floated. He's cheating everybody, but he walks away with millions of dollars. And so in his mind, that was a great business success. It didn't work for anybody else, but it worked for him. And he has four of those bankruptcies. So he built a fortune through thievery and theft and robbery and somehow gets portrayed until very recently as this brilliant real estate developer. When, when the truth is he was just uh, using the, the 
It was just theft. Is that what we get from the eighties though, with that Gordon Gecko greed is good mentality and this kind of, um, we put these guys on a bit of a pedestal, right? These, these really yeah. Wolf yeah. of Wall Street, even though they're supposed to be tales of, of, uh, of wrongdoing, they never are. They're, they're always showing how great their life is or doing tons of dope and they have a huge house and all these women. It's like, how am I supposed to show this as, as, as the don't yeah, do this? And, and even at the end of it all, I go back to when I was a graduate student. It was the Michael Milken case when I was living in Los Angeles. And oh. at the end of the day, he did a few years. It comes out and he's still a multimillionaire. He, he didn't come out of it in bad shape. So would I do a couple of years in a, in a, you know, easy pen in a club fed yeah. and, and come out. Sure, why not? It was worth it. Where, where Martha yeah, Stewart exactly. went, they had doors. Yeah, uh, but oh. but yeah, there is a whole kind of you know cultural apparatus that that creates an ideology for people to consume about uh, th that tells a false narrative of who these people are and how they got where they are. No, there is. And, and I, I just think that with what's interesting with Trump, I feel like he is our first Gordon Gecko type. Yeah, person. he really is. Uh, he really is. Like, this is what we get for making those people heroes in the, in the mid to late 80s. And not really questioning that narrative. And, and at to all. this day, we don't really know if Trump's a billionaire. You know, he may he may be a, a four billionaire in debt, uh, but does he actually mm -hmm. have any real assets? We don't know. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And that's that's why uh, in in when I clicked on the link for your piece, uh, the Donald Trump, a new emperor of the lumpen proletariat. I was like, let me read this. <laughs> well, you know, let, let me make another point there because, you know, Marx actually does talk about uh, what he calls the lumpen aristocracy, which he associates with the finance aristocracy, the, the, the investment bankers, the bond salesmen, the real estate developers, uh, which is what caught my attention in, in terms of drawing an analogy with Trump. And one of the things that, that Marx also talks about in the 18th Brumaire is that not only does, say, somebody like Trump see himself in the lumpen proletariat, they see themselves in him. Because even though he may be wealthy, he shares uh, a lot of commonalities with them, culturally speaking. He's an, econo he's an economic mm. parasite. He doesn't produce anything. He just lives off rents, interests, and royalties. He lives a debauched lifestyle. Uh, you know, everything we can talk about that we know about in terms of politics. He talks like the lumpen proletariat. He's crude. Uh, and so in, in many respects, you know, Marx says that if you talk about these people as being wealthy, well, Pablo Escobar, was a lumpen proletarian who became a very successful, you know, cocaine distributor. But at the end of the day, he was mm -hmm. still a lumpen proletarian. And, and that's kind of the analogy I draw with Marx as well, is that, that basically what you end up with is this coalition of parasites that loot the treasury, you know, ostensibly for their, you know, ultimately the wealthier the ones who benefit. But at, at the end of the day, Trump himself is is a lumpen. He lives like one. He has the culture of one. You know, an an ignorant, utterly uneducated man. Um, and so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he it's he can be a even if he is a billionaire, the lumpen proletarians see themselves in him uh, because he is one of them. You know, he would be very he, well. You've seen him at the rally. He's very comfortable around them. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, I think also, too, what kind of makes me think that he's he's frightening, but he's not as frightening as like the, a Steve Miller presidency or or if Bannon would have stayed in the White House because Trump just doesn't have an ideology. He just really likes the sound of his own voice. And that that narcissism mixed with some incredible 
incredible ignorance. Well, yeah, and I think you're right. <laughs> but that what that is what makes him effective as a kind of a front man for the finance aristocracy, you know, what Marx called a grotesque mediocrity, because he plays the clown show on the world stage. He keeps everybody entertained and distracted or worried and nervous uh, while the Steve Mnuchins of the world just walk away with trillions and trillions of dollars. And and put Mnuchin in, exactly. uh, in the cabinet. Secretary. Um, I want to I want to read this end part of your your essay. Um, it says, "This is the script of the 18th Brumaire. This is the chief of the lumpen proletariat who gleefully declares that I love the poorly educated. Yet, from the standpoint of class analysis, it is therefore important to recognize that the mere act of removing Donald Trump from the office of president will not reverse the underlying logic of post-industrial capitalist development that has led to the rise of an angry and violent white lumpen proletariat. Donald Trump did not cause the white lumpen proletariat, although his words and actions have mobilized and unleashed them in a variety of alt-right, neo-fascist, fascist, and white nationalist organizations, including armed militias that will probably become more activist Trump is, if Trump is denied the presidency. The emergence of a white lumpen proletariat is the result of a long-term process of class formation that has generated an army of counter-revolutionary shock troops that will not disappear because of an election. The lumpen proletariat is armed and dangerous, and consequently, no matter the outcome of the 2020 election, a question will remain as to what is to be done with the white lumpen proletariat. In case you're wondering, The Dangerous Class is a pessimistic book, and it does not have a happy ending at least not in the foreseeable future. Well, I love uh, that. I'll stay with that. I only wrote it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, you know, one of the things I did try to convey in the in the book uh, was that uh, as we is the place where we started uh, is the idea that that this sort of white lumpen proletariat has been in a process of formation now for several decades. This is not something that just appeared in, in 2016. Uh, that what is different though now They've been legitimated. They've been organized. They've been armed. Uh, they're not going away, regardless of who wins this election. And as I said in that essay, I think important to, to recognize, if Trump loses the election, they they will feel they were cheated. You know, they've already got the narrative that convinces them that the election was rigged and that they were sort of cheated out of their messiah. I think they become more active and more violent, uh, and that. That will be interesting to see how a Joe Biden deals with them. Uh, I think there are alternative solutions out there, but I don't think it's Joe Biden. I would much rather see Joe Biden go after the lumpen proletariat than see Joe Biden try to go after the progressive slash socialist that, wing that, of the. Uh, that would the- be a wonderful thing. So I hope you're right. <laughs> they do get mad. Focus your attention on on those people, and please don't try to out Antifa by just outing anyone that disagrees with the the Democratic Party. Yeah, and, and they are going to have to be dealt with because I said they they, you know the the one thing about the internet now is that they have networks, uh, they're organized, uh, they're armed, and they do have an ideology, unlike Donald Trump. Uh, they do have a cause that they think they're fighting for, and they will fight for it, even though it's it's racist uh, in its intent. Yes. Professor Barrow, where can we get uh, your book? Well, it's not quite out. It's published by the University of Michigan Press. It should be out just about any day. Uh, they are taking early orders from the press and at places like Amazon.com. Uh, I'm pressing them to get it out before the election, which they promised me to do. The book is titled The Dangerous Class, The Concept of the Lumpen Proletariat, University of Michigan Press. The author, Professor Clyde W. Barrow, he is professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Thank you so much for taking some time to uh, to talk to me today. Well, thank really you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And I'm glad we have shows like yours out there.
Thank you. Well, please don't hang up. You're going to hear some music. <laughs>